It seems ever since Donald Trump ran for office, every week has some kind of historic once in a lifetime political news story. But uh, this week with the Supreme Court and the confirmation of Ketanji Brown Jackson. Welcome to American Focus. I'm Cole McNeely, General Manager of America's Talking Network. America in Focus is a production of America's Talking Network. You can listen to America in Focus and all of our podcasts at americastalking.com. That's americastalking.com. Now here's your host, Dan McCaleb. Thank you, Cole, and welcome to the America in Focus podcast. I'm Dan McCaleb, executive editor of the Center Square Newswire service. American Focus is brought to you by America's Talking Network, the podcast hub where you can find news, civil conversations, and all of the Center Square's great podcasts. Go to americastalking.com. Joining me today, as he does every week, is Casey Harper, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Center Square. Casey, it's uh, we're recording this on Friday, April 8th. It's been a somewhat of a, an historic week in uh, Washington, D.C., with the confirmation of new Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. Uh, you were there covering it. Tell us about it. Yeah, you're right, Dan. It seems ever since uh, Donald Trump ran for office, every week has some kind of historic once in a lifetime political news story. But uh, this week with the Supreme Court and the confirmation of Ketanji Brown Jackson, she was a a U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit judge. She got a bipartisan support, a 53 to 47 vote. Um, And, you know, that vote, um, pretty quiet vote, may give you the impression that this was a quiet confirmation, but that wouldn't be the case. Uh, She faced, you know, pretty significant opposition, not the same as some of her, you know, recent um, Republican appointed colleagues, but she was confirmed. She is the first uh, black female justice on the court. Um, so, you know, a lot of Democrats really lauded this and the historic nature of it. She's replacing outgoing justice, Stephen Breyer. So uh, he hasn't quite left yet. So she, she's not being um, sworn in yet. As far as the, you know, we can get into some of the criticisms of her, but there was, you know, a few lines of attack, one being that she was soft um, on crime, particularly uh, these kind of child pornography cases that she did sentencing for. Um, another was just like kind of that she was radically uh, that she was radical outside of the mainstream on issues like um, gun rights and uh, other, you know, the other attack was that this was kind of a rushed confirmation hearing because she's not going to be able to, uh, you know, sit on the bench yet. So why, why the rush? But uh, compared to other hearings, she, she didn't really, she wasn't that expedited. I mean, it was 40 days overall from her appointment to her confirmation, um, which, you know, of course, a lot of people are really happy about it saying is um, history making. So it doesn't really cha- uh, change the the um, political stance of the the, the court. She's re- she uh, she is uh, a liberal appointed, of course, by uh, President Biden, replacing another liberal, Stephen Breyer, uh, as you mentioned. So the court will still have um, a, a bit of a conservative slant. Um, that's right. I mean, you know, there's always the question of, uh, well, one, is she going to be much more liberal than Breyer? Right. I mean, that's a, that's a question that you have to think about. And then you also, uh, you know, sometimes these justices aren't what they seem. I mean, John Roberts is a perfect example of that appointed by, yeah, justice, chief justice, John Roberts appointed by a Republican president who's really become a, a moderate and sometimes left leaning swing, you know, swing vote on the court for a time. So, um, that, you know, you're right. You're absolutely right that people are saying this is going to maintain the status quo, but we won't really know 
until a few years uh, go by and we see some of her ruling, see where she sides on some um, some big issues. Right. And and so um, Breyer has stayed on the court um, uh, throughout the confirmation process. Do we know yet when um, uh, Brown Jackson will uh, actually be seated on the court, start hearing cases, start ruling on cases? Um, I haven't seen the official word on that, but I would expect it in the next term. So okay. she'll she'll take over, start hearing cases. Uh, it seems that we've had kind of a flurry of um, appointments recently, and you know some have been uh, more controversial than others. A lot of uh, a lot of people were hard on Republicans and said that um, you know that they treated Jackson poorly, right? And they even tried to make some um, racial claims about that. But I think on the Republican side. The, the glove, we talked about this a little bit um, on a recent podcast, you and I, but the, the gloves have come off when it comes to the Supreme Court nominations after what happened with uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh in particular, oh, yeah. the allegations, the, the kind of the big show that that was. And on both sides, the kind of the way these allegations got turned into theatrics, got turned into um, one of the most bitter political fights that we've seen in a, in a while. Um, Republicans ultimately came out on top on that because they had the numbers, but it really soured these confirmation processes forever, uh, or at least, you know, for the for the foreseeable future. I guess moving it forward, the next question is, will President Biden um, have the opportunity to nominate another uh, Supreme Court justice in the final three years of his uh, uh, first term um, in office? There's some a little bit of a controversy surrounding uh, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. There is no indication that he plans to uh, step down from the court. Um, um, there's been no indication that anyone else plans to retire. Um, any any insight or thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, you're right that uh, um, Clarence Thomas did have some health issues. He seems to have recovered from it now. And we see this pattern where justices will, you know, they'll retire when a president is in office of the same party that appointed them. And I think, that's mostly to keep the balance. So, you know, there are exceptions to that, especially when one of the justices passed away, as did Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a Democrat appointed justice who was replaced by um, Amy Coney Barrett, a Republican appointed justice. So that's where you often get those swings um, when a justice passes away or when Republicans or Democrats are in office so long that the retirement is kind of unavoidable. That doesn't usually happen because, you know, nowadays we kind of swing back and forth in a pendulum of dissatisfaction with either political party just uh this is the nature of uh, the modern politics but clarence yeah. thomas go ahead i was gonna say just in the, in the case of stephen breyer who stepped down there was mm -hmm. conjecture that he was sort of pressured into stepping down because because of his age um, because he was a liberal on the court and president biden is the president um mm -hmm. democrats wanted him to step down while president biden could nominate uh, his replacement Right. And it's not just that uh, because Biden is still going to be in office for three years. You know, uh, it, it's also the Senate and um, Democrats are expecting to lose a lot of seats in, in the House and probably majority in the Senate come November. Um, all the polling is leaning that way. You know, we often see when a um, one party has full control uh, that there's a pushback in the midterms. Um, we saw that with the Tea Party um, pushing back against the Obama administration. And so where Republicans won huge numbers. And so I think, um, you know, the just political uh, wisdom in the air here in D.C. is that Democrats are going to lose big in November. And so um, Republicans have shown 
you know, with Merrick Garland, that they are not afraid to dig in their heels and totally shut down a Democrat appointed um, justice, even at some political cost, potentially. And so I think uh, Democrats very likely could lose the Senate majority um, that they need to confirm these justices. Right. Well, let's move on. Um, Casey, uh, uh, you wrote a story at the centersquare.com this week about a new poll that shows Americans uh, uh, for, uh, are concerned significantly about rising crime, particularly uh, violent crime, retail theft, things like that. Tell us tell us about this. Yeah. Dan, have you seen these videos, Dan, where people will just walk these viral videos where people will just walk into a CVS or a Walgreens with a garbage bag? Um, a few people and they'll just pour all of these items in um, and just walk out unhindered and, and people will video it because they're kind of shocked and astonished. I don't know if you have you seen any of these. Oh, yeah. Can't can't avoid them if you're on social media. Exactly. And so, you know, I think this is kind of outraged a lot of people, but it's actually been going on for a, a few years, especially in places like California, where um, a lot of the. I don't know, it's not been decriminalized, uh, but the penalties have been reduced on shoplifting so much that. Uh, people aren't afraid to shoplift and they're not afraid of getting caught and they're not afraid of being prosecuted, um, especially. So, you know, you can, uh, for, you know, in California, you could steal, you know, $800 worth of, uh, you know, makeup remover and makeup products from a, from a Walgreens um, and not face any kind of, you know, serious charges or anything and sell those online um, and make a profit. And, that's the other part of this. I think that a lot of people don't understand is this organized retail crime wave. It's not just people who, you know, because your instinct may be, well, what do you get from a CVS? If you need to steal from a CVS, maybe you really need it. But it's not that it's not that simple. People aren't just stealing bags of chips because they're hungry. They're, they're stealing a ton of makeup supplies. They're stealing a lot of um, cleaning supplies or things like that. And then selling it um, on Amazon, on different places online. And it's become really a business where you, you have like a pyramid and people, you know, go out, they steal things, they bring it back to the warehouse and they sell it online. And so it's become really like organized crime actually. That's, right. and it's, it's hitting the, those businesses a second time because you can imagine these businesses are selling, also selling things online. And so now you are competing in the marketplace with goods that were stolen from you. So not only were you stolen from, but now your online sales could be diminished because people um, are selling those things online. So that's becoming a really common, especially in California and New York, uh, you know, I have, I have here that, um, Walgreens shut down 22 locations in San Francisco, um, San Francisco, you know, I don't know if we have any listeners there, maybe not, but, um, they're kind of becoming known for the lawlessness, uh, and they're getting this reputation. And I think all of this, along with the huge spike in violent crime we've seen in the last two years has Americans very concerned about crime. So this newly released Gallup polling, um, found out that 53% of Americans are um, worry a quote great deal about crime, which is kind of like the very concerned versus concerned level. Um, that's the highest level since 2016. On top of that, there's 27% of Americans who are worried a fair amount, right? So that is um, about 80%. You know, don't take my math on that, but that's about 80% of Americans who are concerned about crime, the vast majority. And we're seeing the highest levels in a few years. And so it's just kind of playing in to a lot of narratives of, of the narrative around defunding the police that we've seen um, a lot of the riots that we saw in 2020, the rising violent crime, which really soared in, in 2020 and is also elevated uh, last year. So and I want to point out another thing. Um, 
Casey, that is that seems to be changed, particularly in these large larger cities where you're seeing this these massive increases in both violent crime and this retail theft, these operations, um, these group operations, uh, smash and grabs um, and whatnot, is that um, the election of, of activist prosecutors and activist judges who are softer on crime, who aren't prosecuting um, uh, to the fullest extent of the law, some of these cases, it's it, it, many say it's emboldened um, these criminals. They know they're not going to face prison time um, or whatever. So it'll be interesting to see how this concern over crime affects. Uh, you, we fo- when we talk about elections, we focus on you know Congress and U.S. Senate and whatnot. But there'll be plenty of prosecutors and judges on the ballot uh, in November as well. So it'll be interesting to see if this concern um, about crime changes who voters you know, elect to those offices. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And this has actually been going on for several years. It's part of a concerted effort. Um, by the progressive wing in the Democratic Party to um, infiltrate all levels of the justice system with these progressive prosecutors. One of the biggest funders is George Soros. It's become kind of a uh, <clears throat> controversial thing, a, a point of you know investigation, investigative journalism things. But uh, George Soros is like a Democratic mega donor. And <clears throat> you can even look at articles from several years ago showing that he's channeling millions of dollars into these local district attorney campaigns in various states, uh, you know, different prosecutors um, to get these very progressive um, prosecutors in place. And we actually saw a recent governor, as soon as they were elected, <clears throat> I believe it was in Virginia, that on day one, they fired all the Soros prosecutors, basically. And uh, this was a big story, you know, really, I guess, set back a lot of the progressive wings work. But it shows you that this is a really big issue that's, uh, you know, affecting how crime is prosecuted and how we're getting repeat offenders. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to cover this story this week is I do think that crime is resurfacing as a major political issue. You know, crime has often been known as like a local politics issue, but I think it's really going to hit a national level this next election cycle, or maybe in 2024, if it continues to rise, especially because, um, you know, the progressive wing of the democratic party has done so much to, um, facilitate kind of what we're what we're seeing right now. So we uh, one last point on this. You know, we, we wrote about we cover all uh, 50 states at the center square, uh, the center square dot com. A reporter in Texas wrote this week about this huge rift um, um, that's that's growing between Austin Police Department, uh, the capital city uh, of Texas, uh, the Austin Police Department and prosecutors there because the Austin Police Department mm-hmm. uh, murders and other violent crime, uh, like in many other uh, big U.S. cities, has risen significantly um, there. The police do the, you know, the, the hard work, the, the, the investigations. They arrest these suspects. And then the prosecutors and the judges in particular um, are letting them go either on no bond or low bond. And then they go out and they repeat offend. In fact, the Austin Police Department uh, the police union there has um, has uh, on their website has issued a warning about what they call nine activist judges who have released um, uh, accused murderers on either no bond or low bond. Um, and then there are examples of, of uh, those murderers go- or those accused mur- murderers going back out and committing more violent crimes. Um, so it's it's it, the, the justice system is really messed up right now. Yeah. And um, the accused murder is getting out so easily is very unusual for any listener who doesn't really know a lot about it. That is very unusual. 
um, largely because you can leave. It's, you're such a flight risk. You know, if you're a, if you've committed murder and you're guilty and then they let you out on bond, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to flee the country. You're going to, or you're going to, you know, going up to Canada or down to Mexico or something. Um, so you don't face charges, but it has, you're right. This rift is not just, um, in Austin, it's happening in all kinds of, uh, cities, you know, and it's part of why policing has become so politicized. Um, it's something to watch and I, I'm uh, definitely, we're definitely gonna be covering it more at the center square.com. All right, let's move on then, um, Casey. And another uh, big story, and will be a big story probably for weeks, even months. Um, President Biden has repealed uh, the Title 42 uh, COVID COVID rule that uh, during the pandemic um, it made e- made it easier to send immigrants who illegally cross the border um, back to their home countries, back to Mexico. But he's now repealing that, and there is um, significant concern. Um, that we, we, we've seen a huge spike in illegal immigration, border crossings uh, under the Biden administration because of his policies. Um, but there's concern that that spike is even going to grow much more significantly because of the repeal of Title 42. Tell us about this. Yeah, I mean, it is an understatement to say that illegal immigration has spiked since Biden took office. It is absolutely soared. Um, you know, Customs and Border Patrol said last year or said that last year, you know, we had 2 million people, about 2 million people who were caught um, by Border Patrol coming across the border. That doesn't even count. We have no way of knowing how many, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions are getting across undetected. Right. Right. I mean, so when you're talking about millions, I mean, that's a that is a very significant percentage. So if we say 2 million didn't get caught. Um, 2 million did. That is, you know, that's 1% of our population just in illegal immigration. And that doesn't count the legal immigration, um, which is very significant in America. So this is, I mean, this is huge cultural ability to shift culture, to shift local economies, to totally shift demographics and neighborhoods in a really drastic, really, uh, really fast. And it's happening. And so where this Title 42 role comes in is basically um, when Trump came into office, he said, hey, illegal immigrants can be bringing COVID. So we're going to um, we're going to crack down and crack down on them. They can't come to the country uh, to wait for things. So we just expel them immediately in the name of COVID. And it's become, you know, one of the main tools of Border Patrol, which has really had their hands, you know, cuffed behind their backs and what they're able to do by more progressive administrations and everything. So um, they embrace this rule. They've been getting rid of a lot of people at the at the southern border in particular. Um, but now Biden is repealing that, you know, through the CDC, which is where the order came from. Um, of course, you know, Democrats are a lot softer on immigration. They, they're they more open to people coming in. Republicans are going to crack down on it and raise concerns about the economic consequences, the federal spending consequences. Are people going to start receiving entitlement benefits, um, you know, in places like California? I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what Illinois does for um, illegal immigrants. Stand. But in California, you can end up getting government benefits just pretty much as soon as you come across the border. Do you know anything? Is Illinois? Well, yeah, illegal immigrants are eligible for things like um, Pell Grants for to, for, uh, right. to get into you know, colleges and universities here, things like that. Not as drastic as California, but yes, the, uh, uh, here in Illinois, there are benefits available to illegal immigrants. And let, let me just uh, swing the conversation. One other thing is, is uh, the gro- growing concern about fentanyl uh, smuggling into this country mm-hmm. across the border in uh, uh from mexico and the the amounts of drug overdoses or deaths because of these uh, fentanyl um um 
because of the massive amounts of fentanyl that are being smuggled across the border. There's concerns in all states, not just in border states, um, um, that uh, the repeal of Title 42 is just going to uh, add to that growing problem. Yeah, and that's why we've seen that uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Greg Abbott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis say that they're going to start um, shipping illegal immigrants to uh, some Democratic hotspots around the country. This is um, in some ways, this is kind of political theater, but it's been really interesting to see if they actually follow through with it. You know, Greg Abbott said he's going to ship them to the the steps of Capitol Hill. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm in I'm in D.C. And and if he actually does that, especially on a significant level, like by the thousands, uh, it would really affect the city a lot. I mean, I would not underestimate the effect that would have on the city. I mean, uh, D.C. has largely become what a lot of you know, pundits kind of say it is, which is the, the elite ruling classes playground where there's, you know, mil, you know, multi-million dollar mansions and um, fancy restaurants and bars and, and this kind of just this elite status and especially in the Capitol Hill area. And so too, I don't know where the, <laughs> these migrants would go. There would have to be some kind of a federal program, federal officers in place waiting for them to get dropped off, probably just to put them back on another bus, take them somewhere else. Um, because there's, you know, they would just be pulling up on the, on the streets, on the sidewalks. But I think, uh, you know, I think Abbott is acting within his rights and is saying, Hey, uh, you know, we, Texas is bearing all the, so much of the financial burden of all these people. And if, if you want them to come in then you can take them and, and they're also, you know, DeSantis is sending them to Delaware, which is, um, of <laughs> course, Biden's home state. And I think that what this all also highlights is kind of the regional nature of this problem, which is. There are a few states that are really impacted by this issue, um, and, and it's very important to them. States like uh, Texas, Florida, Arizona, California, um, and the and the rest of the nation kind of has the luxury of ignoring it. And I think that's kind of what you're sensing here is the frustration with some of these governors. It's like that they are getting the short end of the stick because um, northern states that don't really have to deal with this are just telling Texas to and you know Florida and places like that to get over it. I'd say yes, with the exception of the the, the drug smuggling, because we have seen right, non-border right. states, attorney generals, governors from non-border states saying they have seen uh, since President Biden took office and loosened um, immigration policies, they have seen uh, significantly more uh, uh, amounts of things like dangerous drugs, like uh, fentanyl and other op opioids, um, and mm -hmm. as a result, overdoses um, and and deaths. Um, because of that, but well, um, so uh, that's going to be a developing story because um, um, uh, Title 42, um, uh, uh, the enforcement of the Title 42 rule is going to end in May, and there's growing concern uh, about what that's going to do. So we'll continue to cover that at the centersquare.com. Uh, Casey, just have a couple of more minutes. Want to talk about um, um, one last story, um, and that has to do with gas prices and who's to blame for the high gas prices. President Biden has has, has tried to put the emphasis on the uh, uh, Russia inv Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, other Democrats blame the the oil industry for taking advantage of the crisis and and. Um, um, artificially uh, keeping gas prices high. Um, there was a hearing this week in Congress where the oil executives themselves pushed back. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we've got um, 
a bit of a, a stand, a Mexican standoff on this gas prices issues uh, at issue. And we saw it in a congressional hearing this week where um, all the top oil executives or so many, many of the top oil executives came before Congress. Uh, you know, Democrats blasted them and, and called them to lower prices. Republicans pointed to um, democratic energy policies and Biden is pointing to uh, Putin. So you kind of have this standoff where, uh, you know, Putin, uh, oil oil companies, and Biden slash Democratic energy policies are all blaming uh, one another, and they're all all receiving some blame. But really, the people who are suffering are you know regular Americans who are paying so much more at the pump. And so the the kind of arguments uh, that are being made is Biden is saying, hey, you know, Putin's invasion has affected the global oil supply. That's why we're seeing such high prices. The pushback on that is, hey, you know, we we've been seeing high prices rise and rise since Biden took office. Well before, um, well before, invasion. yeah, well before the Russian invasion. Of course, that the invasion uh, has made it worse, but um, you cannot blame this whole trend, or even I'd say most of this rising trend of, of prices um, on Putin. So then it leaves um, the oil companies. You know, Democrats will say the oil companies are making big profits. Um, and that shows that they they have you know room to give on these um, gas prices. Now, what they said in their hearings this week, I mean, it was a long, long hearing. So there's a lot of things that were said. But one of the salient points was that one oil company doesn't determine the price of you know barrels of oil around the world and in the U.S. And there's a lot more going into it. And the biggest thing that goes into it is supply. And they point to government policies, which have the biggest you know impact on supply. Um, since Biden took office, he's really done a lot to inhibit pipeline development, um, federal leasing for oil and gas, really to discourage the expansion of um, domestic oil, oil and gas production. And he's looked to uh, overseas groups like OPEC to fill in the gaps there to increase the the, the supply to lower prices. And so you just kind of stand off. A lot of people get the blame, but ultimately it's the American people who are feeling the pain. Right. And of, of course, Biden is is um, I don't want to use the word caving, but um, uh, he's he's had pressure from from the progressive wing of the uh, Democratic Party to um, to you know uh, lower emissions uh, in the name of uh, uh, reversing climate change. Um, but it doesn't make any sense to me um, that you would put more restrictions on U.S. Uh, uh, gas production, oil and gas production. But then ask your enemies to boost oil and gas uh, production. Climate change is something that's worldwide, right? So, right. Uh, just- I mean, this is what we see in, in all the climate and energy debate. Though, is you know, we and we put all these restrictions on ourselves, and then China says, "Hey, we promise we'll start doing that in ten years." You know, I mean, this is this is like the common theme is that the U.S. keeps trying to fall on this sword of climate change to save the planet while our adversaries around the world are, are happy to let us do that while they, you know, China is a huge producer of coal. I mean, not talking about oil and gas, I mean, coal is, is a major, uh, a major economic factor for China. And that's not going anywhere anytime soon. They're growing, they've been expanding coal production. Right. And so this idea that like the whole world is united to stopping climate change is practically, it's not happening. Well, one thing is clear that uh, gas prices are high. It's hurting consumers everywhere, and it doesn't look like they're going to be coming down um, anytime soon. But, Casey, that is all the time we have this week. Um, to our listeners, uh, just a reminder, you can find all of the Center Squares podcasts at americastalking.com. Take a look. Please subscribe. 
There is no cost. That's americastalking.com. For Casey Harbour, I'm Dan McCaleb. We'll talk to you next week.